0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. The refugee crisis is a human crisis. I'll talk with Ai Weiwei about his art involving refugees. During the worst refugee crisis in decades, the U.S. has reduced the number of refugees it resettles here. We'll reflect on how it's affecting the refugee resettlement agency Refugee One. And the crisis in Honduras drives refugees to the U.S. We'll hear from Honduran singer Carla Lara. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. artist Ai Weiwei is making the most of his time in Chicago. He was at the Humanities Fest yesterday. Then, after a mass showing of his Academy Award nominated film on the refugee crisis, Human Flow, he took questions online at the University of Chicago. And tonight, you can see him at the Auditorium Theater. He's discussing his upcoming exhibition, Trace, about prisoners of conscience and surveillance. It's going to be at the Alpha Wood Gallery. And there is a new book of Ai Weiwei quotes and aphorisms about the refugee crisis and human rights. It's called Humanity, and it was edited by Larry Warsh. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ai Weiwei. It's great to meet you. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell us a little about your background and why you relate to the refugee crisis so much. Your father <laughs> was a, uh, a famous poet in China. He was the most renowned poet of his time, and you went you were kind of grew up in a labor camp.
1: My father... <clears throat> studied in Paris in 1930s. Once he comes back from um, Paris, studied art, then he was being put in jail by Kuomintang at that time, which is rightist government. Then after serving three years, he was sentenced for six years, but after ser- serving three years, he was released and joined the communist struggle. Then went to Yan'an, established this new government, communist government. So it's basically part of this revolutionary. And uh, he becomes the most uh, well-known poet or literature man. Till 1957, he has been criticized as a rightist by the leftist. Communist Party so that's a year I was born so he has been sent to kind of labor camp and to be re-educated so I growing up with him in very remote area in Xinjiang which is northwest the first place you can be in China
0: and it was like this was a humiliating thing he, was, he had to clean toilets and things like that
1: well, it's uh, the life condition is is not even mentionable. It's it, you know it couldn't be worse than that. He's uh, very uh, humiliated and uh, discriminated, and uh, he has been accused of some kind of crime he never committed, and uh, people treat him like uh, the worst type of uh, um, treatment he, he you can ever get. He was we are living underground, you know, it is like uh, some bushes on the roof, then then you have to really uh squeeze yourself into this candle kind of darkness because there's simply no electricity. And his daily job is clean the public um, toilet. It's not really a toilet, it's in the farming area. It's 13 of them, you know, uh, for two hundred people. So in that following five years, he never had one day, can, he can never rest because simply the, if he rest for one day, the next day's job is not bearable.
0: How did that experience relate to what you saw in
1: the refugee crisis in the news? Well, it's so much related. You know, people has been pushed out from their home. There's 65 million of refugees in the world. There's not a single one willing to leave their home. The Home can be poor, can be, you know, can be in very remote area, but still it's their home till something disturbs their life, either war or famine or you know or you know conflicts. So they have to give up everything, to go to some foreign area, trying to protect their life or their children's future. And you got involved in this with a trip to Lesbos with your son? You, you That's my first approach, is to bring my son to Lesbos. I told him it's a vacation. And uh, in the reality, my son and my girlfriends, uh, we are standing on the shore to receiving refugees. And at that moment, I decided to make a movie. The movie is called Human Flow. And uh, we, since then, our team traveled over 23 nations, visited 40 biggest refugee camps in the world. You know, we traveled from Turkey to Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Gaza, and Kenya, and uh, Bangladesh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the film is
0: on Amazon now, and people can see it there uh, It's a beautiful film in many ways uh, there is a lot of beauty even in desperate situations at times and uh, there's scenes where people are wrapped in foil sitting on the shore, and they're desperate and cold and and uh, you know in the wind but it's it it's a gorgeous looking kind of thing uh how what was your strategy with Shooting this, and how do you give people
1: <laughs> dignity and and figure I, into the beauty? And... I'm a son of a poet, and I'm an artist. Beauty is um, I cannot avoid to to escape aesthetic judgment, um, even facing tragic moment or or disaster crisis. I think there's always beauty and dignity in human suffering. You know, because most of the world uh, are suffering and uh, we have to give the dignity to to these people.
0: I'm talking with Ai Weiwei. We're discussing his film Human Flow. It was a, a, nominated for an Academy Award and is available at Amazon. And um, what were the takeaways after visiting all these refugee camps and all the different uh, situations people get into? There seem to be some very different circumstances and there seems to be some things that are very common uh, a lot of people build walls it seems
1: well um, when Cold War um, finished that's like late 80s uh, when Berlin Wall collapsed that time there's over a dozen borders and uh, and fences between nations now over 70 nations have and rebuild their borders, include U.S. Start build their walls uh, with the neighbor, uh, you know, the Mexico. So you can see there's a tendency of um, to to build um, borders to exclusive, uh, to be more um, push the people away, and uh, to to have much less tolerance. About um people who was victimized by globalization and by all kinds of um, power,
0: what do you think's happened to our societies since at the end of World War II? There was a refugee convention that said. Um, we should accept people who are being persecuted and who are in danger and are refugees. And now we routinely don't. I mean, today in the news, on the U.S. border, there are Hondurans who want to come in. And the, the, the U.S. president has been you know, tweeting uh, for days about these people being dangerous.
1: I think we are living in a moment which testing our humanity and the exams are – our position, about ourselves, basically, and uh, how we look at the refugee situation really tells the world who we are and uh, what kind of values we are defending. And uh, today, the refugee situation not uh, just happened by itself. It created by wars or created by um, globalization and uh, uh, expanding of... uh, Power and uh, grabbing resource and the regional conflicts, so all those basically we are very benefited uh, by but those uh, development, but at the same times uh, not to bear basic res- responsibility.
0: The it seems like there's no leaders who argue for more refugee resettlement. I mean Justin Trudeau in Canada argues to accept more refugees, but not many do. Uh, We just had France's president in the U.S., and he argues that if we don't uh, do something about the refugee crisis, it's going to ruin liberal democracy and threaten Western democracy as we know it. We'll have a bunch of uh, authoritarian-type people in power. Um, How do you think we should uh, address the refugee crisis, can political leaders get up and, and argue that refugees are a good thing and survive?
1: I think we really have to answer that to really uh, rethink about refugee crisis that 's why I said it 's no refugee crisis but human crisis. If we don 't deal it to see it 's a human crisis it 's a threat to humanity and to our civilization. You know, if we don't come out ideas in protecting those very basic values, which are so-called uh, civilized society uh, are established uh, or based on those values. So we are, we are facing some total failure of our ideology and we, we are facing a really dark time.
0: Uh, so, do you think that how should we address it? If if should politicians go out there and
1: should they uh, compromise or should they? Uh... I I think the answer is very clear. It's a human crisis made by human. We have to bear responsibility. We have to do it from what really caused those refugees. You know, we cannot just sell billions or billions of dollars of. Uh, War machines or weapons to those dangerous uh, area. You know, you you can easily understand politics if you follow the money. You know, who's profited from all those uh, uh, world instability, and uh, you know, the, it's very clear. Uh, certain nations have more responsibility than others, and uh, also, you can never really trust politicians because they're they're just. Uh, have their own interests, so the they the democracy is not going to work if we don't uh, make them the politicians work for us. So every citizens have to, you know, have to act, have to push the politicians. Politicians would never uh, working in democratic society without citizens uh, make an effort.
0: Is it a failure of uh, our, our educational system or our, our values? It's a failure
1: in every aspect. Educational, yes, and uh, our worldview, our values, and uh, how we, we would survive with this kind of uh, short-sighted and uh, shameful position we're taking. You know, since the this administration, they only have accepted 11 refugees from a Syrian war. They also bombing Syria, you know, with all kind of excuse, and uh, they have, a, you know, military involvement. Just, just, just the picture looks something wrong with it, right? I mean, you know, anybody can understand. But very often people feel powerless because, you know, you have politicians, you have uh, interest uh, groups who are so powerful.
0: What, how do
1: we counter something like
0: that? I know you're very active in social media and you believe in uh, talking about all sorts of uh, issues on social media and bringing people together. Is there some uh, way to combat what's going on?
1: I, I think uh, maybe for too long we forget the, the real individual uh, involvement face politics. You know, it's very strange to take an artist to, to say that. But because this lacking of channels to really express ourselves and to really act in the very essential values or, you know, to express our, our feelings, so that, that made people feel powerless. But uh, that should not be the way. If a person in this kind of society feel powerless, think about a refugee. They lost everything. They lost their language, their religion, everything they, 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 they are used to be familiar with. And how could they even survive in this kind of society?
0: I'm talking with Ai Weiwei. We're talking about Refugee Crisis. His film uh, Human Flow is a look at the refugee crisis. He's done a couple of other exhibits, uh, one in uh, Germany where you had uh, life preservers on these pillars outside this uh, grand Roman staircase. It was very affecting. You've got another exhibit in Doha of clothes from uh, people who came to Lesbos. Um, You've been working this through in more, more than just the film
1: yeah i try to do everything possible to you know as artists you express your feelings through sometimes a movie a book a uh, uh, installation or or set up some some kind of possibility in discussion, but every effort is trying to trying to survive myself to to through this dramatic time when humanity is still a and people are shy to talk about you know people are avoid to to really discuss the meaning of what is humanity
0: i wanted to ask you about uh the section of your film you were in gaza and i know that one of the people you uh, had used as a cameraman was shot and killed uh, recently in the protests uh at the gaza wall his name was yasa Murtaja um wow. How, what did you think about all this?
1: I it, it, you know so many things happen in the world, it, it just it couldn't you can, could not rationalize it. It's unbelievable. A young person who grew up in Gaza never even had a chance to to leave that little little area and uh, dreamed to become so one day they can see the world. But in the peaceful demonstration. And uh, dozens of people being killed, hundreds being wounded you know by snappers, military snappers shooting in in the you know Gaza It's not across the border, but we're shooting in the Palestinian Gaza, and uh, even you have a prime minister who say nobody is innocent in Gaza, and that of... Political condition and in front of the whole world no media really talk about it and something is wrong with it you know we all live in conspiracy or we we want our world become a more you know with sunshine you know protect our children with basic justice and uh, fairness
0: uh israel uh has such a long history i mean they were refugees themselves uh the jewish people and uh you go to the palestinian camp in lebanon they're refugees uh the people in gaza are refugees there's african refugees in israel who have been controversial lately israel wants to ship them out um you did an exhibit in israel recently um what did uh Did you think that uh, what did you want to have a conversation with them about this? Or uh, there are some people who say, "Well, there's a boycott movement. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't have an exhibit." How did you? Yeah, there's a lot
1: of criticism to talk about why you accept it in Israel. I believe if I cannot establish my way of a conversation, then I cannot even accept it in United States. You know. You know, when you're selling so many weapons to Saudi and uh, everybody profited from it, then how can I have uh, any exhibition in the United States, you know? And you made the Iraq war push a few million, become homeless, and killed a few hundred thousand people. I mean, come on, we cannot do that. Just boycott it. Boycott is never working. We have set up communication, confrontational, can be, or can be peacefully state in your mind, because we have to believe if the idea is right, you have to think they should understand it. Even they they re, re, refuse to, to have this kind of discussion, very often, those kind of society or those kind of power, they, they are afraid to discuss things.
0: I wanted to talk with you a little about the exhibition that's upcoming, uh, Trace in Chicago. This is uh, portraits with Legos of 176 uh, prisoners of conscience, essentially, uh, people who were. then the Lego installation is on the ground. It's also about surveillance. Uh, what What is uh, this installation?
1: Why did you do this? The, the installation I originally made for uh, uh California, and uh, it's it's about, you know, it's in the old prison. And uh, I want to have a show talking about freedom, you know. So in the world, there's thousands of political prisoners. It can be in China, can be in Iraq, can, uh, Iran, and can be in uh, Egypt, and also can be in the United States, you know, um, like uh, Charles Manning and... Uh, and uh, Snowden, you know, these very noticeable ones, they they lost their freedom because they hold different political opinions. So this is about the world. We have to, to care about those people who lost their freedom because they fight for the freedom. That freedom, that idea, would benefit the society. If we don't have those fighters, then the cost will be big. We have a lot of dark dark time in the history, only because our voice cannot be heard. So I made Lego portraits for those people. You know, I, I make Lego only because many of those prisoners doesn't even have a, a sharp image. You know, they don't have a portrait. Very often it's very blur. But Lego would make it sharp image or not sharp image, same, you know, it's pixeled. So that is the idea, to, to, to still showing, to combine this most horrifying political condition with most common household uh, um, toys. You know, every child, every, even every do- adult who knows what's Lego about, but to make it combined and to, to, to set up a new type of communication.
0: And so the exhibit Trace is going to be at the Alpha Wood Gallery starting on May 9th. and you'll be talking about it at the Auditorium Theater tonight, um, and having a conversation at the Auditorium Theater as well. And lastly, your book uh, Humanity is out. It's it's aphorisms. It's you've got a you know a little blue book. Uh, well, how do you how do you like having your aphorisms kind of con, combined
1: into this book here? I. Um. My father is a writer. I I love writings, and uh, but I I if I have only regret is I don't spend that much time in writing. I do a lot of interviews or talking, but writing requires you sit down and to to enjoy the the time to be alone and uh, you know to write sentence by sentence. So. My friend Larry Walsh uh, helped to editing the book, which mostly uh, come from my interviews. I think it's, it's a book talk about the most important issues of our time. And uh, it's one person's opinion, that artist. And uh, I hope there's more discussions on those issues. Me too.
0: I Weiwei, it's great meeting you. And thanks for joining us. And thanks for all your great work. Thank you. You can see Ai Weiwei tonight at the Auditorium Theater at 7 p.m. You can see his exhibit, Trace, at the Alphawood Gallery on May 9th. His book is Humanity. His film, Human Flow, is on Amazon, and I highly recommend that. We are going to continue talking about the refugee crisis after the break. I will talk with the Refugee Resettlement Agency, Refugee One, and we'll talk about how they're dealing with a reduced number of refugees. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ai Weiwei. Thank you. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. With the world in the midst of the worst refugee crisis since World War II, the U.S. has cut the number of refugees it resettles. Many independent agencies who are paid to do the resettlement by the government are adjusting to a new reality. With me is Maline Kainau. She is the executive director of the refugee agency Refugee One. They resettle people here in Chicago, and she's a refugee herself from Iran. Thanks for joining me, me, Maline.
2: Hi, Jerome. Thank you for inviting me to your program. Uh,
0: could you tell people how the whole resettlement thing works? I don't think most people probably realize that resettlement agencies are out there and they do the thing that um, that uh, refugees need when they first get to this country.
2: Um, sure. First of all, I want to remind the listeners that um, refugees are individuals who are forced to, To flee their country and cannot return home. Um, They have fear of persecution and fear of losing their lives if they were to return to the circumstances from which they have fled. Less than 1% of the world's refugee population eventually gets a chance to be resettled in a country like United States. Also, refugees are screened more carefully than any other traveler to the U.S. The background checks are really rigorous and they take about two years. Um, refugee one is an organization that was created in 1982 to help refugees who are coming to the Chicago area resettle and successfully integrate. Our programs include English classes, help refugees find jobs. We provide them with case management. We have a very vibrant refugee children's program. We help about 500 kids. Uh, with the integration process to American, you know, school systems every year, and we also have in-house mental health services and um, an immigration initiatives.
0: And now, how does it work with the, the government pays you per refugee that you're resettling? And if you're resettling a, less refugees, um, what does that mean?
2: Uh, We do receive a per capita amount for each refugee that we resettle. For example, this year we were approved by State Department to resettle uh, 425 refugees between the period of July 1st, 2017, to June 30th, 2018. Uh, Now we know that 425 number will not materialize. As of to date, we have resettled about 125 refugees. That's 125 refugees. So um, the the pace has slowed down very considerably.
0: So what do resettlement agencies do in that? Now, I noticed that the um, Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society chapter in Chicago, they they folded, they closed up shop. There's not enough refugees coming in for people.
2: That's correct. That's correct. Um, if you remember last year, um, you know, the, the the current administration went through a phase of introducing to executive orders that uh, and then there were some pushbacks from the court systems. Eventually, we had to deal with a 120 day total moratorium on refugee arrivals. Um, come October, with the beginning of a new federal fiscal year, the current administration decided to set the ceiling for refugee admissions to 45,000. And that's compared to about 75,000, which had been the norm for past several years. So a huge drop right there of 30,000. In addition to dropping the number of admissions, they also said they want to shrink the network of refugee resettlement agencies, and they decided whichever office does not resettle more than 100 refugees can no longer stay in this program. And that's how the Immigrant Aid Society here uh, in Chicago decided to close their offices. Um, So,
0: I mean, that's something most people probably don't realize is happening, the state department is uh you know shrinking the number of refugee resettlement agencies out there.
2: Uh that's very true. Um this is all being done very quietly and we could even cope with the 45,000 number if we were at a pace to reach that. Um, right now, we are at a pace to reach about twenty to twenty one thousand arrivals of refugees by September thirtieth, so we want to hold this administration accountable to at least reaching the number that they themselves have set for refugee admissions
0: so they're they're about to reach like half less than half of yes. what they their ceiling number is
2: yes, correct
0: um. We did hear from I Way. He says that it's been like eleven or thirteen Syrian refugees in in this fiscal year.
2: That's correct. Uh, is eleven eleven admission eleven Syrian refugees versus four and a half million refugees in the world, Syrians in the world.
0: How does the administration what arguments do they make about the slow pace of bringing refugees in?
2: Everything is very much based on the fact that they are hoping to revamp the screening process, um, the background check process, which... You know, as refugee advocates, we are not against having a safe and secure program. We are the first in line, wanting to make sure that refugees are well vetted and no one gets mixed in um, with the a group of refugees who they themselves are are running from terrorism and persecution. So, but at this point, the revamping of the screening process is being used as an excuse to basically the program to a standstill.
0: How does an organization like yours uh, continue to function? If you have a reduced income from the fewer refugees, do you have to lay people off?
2: Yes, we have laid off and restructured about 10 positions in this past year. Uh, about 50% of our funding comes from government sources. The other 50% comes from foundations and individuals and communities of faith um... we have to be very creative uh... we have to be very flexible and adapt to the changing reality of our life um... we in the last three years we have resettled over sixteen hundred refugees and about half have been children so there definitely are a lot of refugees still here who need our services we have expanded our english language classes and our employment program and now we're helping those who were placed in jobs, you know, um, go to the next step and upgrade their current situation. And we're helping everyone thrive, you know, in their lives that they have started in the United States. We have some new initiatives that we have started. We have created a sewing studio. And through this program, we're giving refugee women and men a chance to learn this new skill and also um, for those who go to the advanced level, earn money. Um, And in the future, we are planning to expand our uh, youth program to help kids, you know, successfully um, go to college. And we're also thinking of starting a law clinic. So we're being creative in serving basically the refugees who are already here. But I want to emphasize that refugees are arriving. We do have newly arriving refugees. It's just that it's at a much slower pace.
0: I'm talking with Maline Canow, and she is the executive director of the resettlement agency Refugee One about some of the challenges that uh, refugee resettlement organizations are facing these days. Uh, what happened when the Trump administration came in? There was so much action around refugees and, and worry about refugees. Uh, what was it like for your organization? It seemed like there was people wanting to volunteer all the time, people giving money. Uh, what What happened?
2: We really have been humbled by the response of the community around us. Chicago has been and continues to be a welcoming community, and that's really the energy behind us that keeps us, um, you know, going on on every single day. We are um, accepting volunteer applications. People can still sign up and volunteer with us. Um, We um, also, you know, our ongoing fundraising activities help us to supplement the loss of government funding. And in a couple of minutes, perhaps you and I can talk about our upcoming gala. Um, and, and, you know, really, uh, the community is very supportive of, of what we do. And we need to keep telling the stories, the success stories of refugees who are coming to the Chicago area so that this support continues. Refugees who have lived their entire lives, sometimes in refugee camps, become self-supporting, financially self-sufficient between six to nine months after their arrival to this country. That per se tells you how resilient refugees are, and they are not coming here to join, um, you know, to, to receive welfare for a long term, which is some of the, you know, some of what you hear in the, in the media. They are not coming here to use and abuse the system. They are coming here to build new lives, and they are coming here to contribute to their new society and country.
0: And I've been to your gala a bunch of times now. I emcee it every year, and uh, we're emceeing the gala uh, on Saturday. There's another gala, and I'm going to be there. And it's great to be in a room full of people who are really uh, supportive and having, you know, meeting the tests that uh, humanity has given us to, to to help, you know, some of these people, a few of these people, start new lives. Um, and the gala is something you had to do to. You know, a lot of refugee resettlement agencies don't do these things, but that's how you kind of get more uh, more money to help help the resettlement process.
2: Absolutely. Our gala is this Saturday, May 5th. It will take place at the Radisson Blue Aqua Hotel. And um, thank you for emceeing it. And we will... This year, um, the theme of our gala is Hopeful New Beginnings and Unlimited Potential. We are highlighting and featuring the achievements of refugee youth. Our keynote speaker is a young man from Liberia, who arrived here in Chicago at the age of 11. This May, he is graduating from Purdue University with an engineering job waiting for him. And um, we will hear his story, his journey, and every single person who has contributed to his success. He was so, him and his family, were so warmly welcomed by um, the community in Wilmette. And what what a welcome they were given and how they befriended this family for years. We are expecting 550 guests, and it's going to be a great event. org. All the details are there.
0: Malina Kano is the executive director of Refugee One, and it's good to talk with you. We'll see you on Saturday night, and I am co-hosting the event with Miriam, a young woman from Burma who's an extraordinary person, had never gone to a regular school until she was 11, and uh, now is on her way to college. Uh, it's going to be super fun, and I look forward to seeing you then.
2: Thank you, Jerome
0: coming up after the break, we're going to talk about Honduras, a place that is a source of refugees these days. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. That song is Defender of Life by my next guest, Carla Lara of Honduras. She's on a singing tour of the U.S. And with her to interpret and talk with us is Matt ginsberg jakel He's with Lavoz de la Bajo. And uh, he was in Honduras recently. And we've talked with him about observing the 2017 presidential elections and talked with him several times about Honduras. Great to see you, Matt.
3: Great to be back. Thanks, Jerome.
0: And it's great to see you, Carla. Thanks, Thanks for joining us.
4: Igual. Same here.
0: (laughs) It's a great pleasure for me. You know, I think Honduras is in the news again today because of the um, the asylum seekers who were on the border with Mexico. Um, Could you tell us from your point of view about the crisis in Honduras and why it keeps sending refugees out?
4: Bueno, ahorita mismo eh, hay una situación. De militarización extrema en el país.
3: Right now there's a situation of extreme militarization in the country.
4: Y... Which has made people
3: extremely afraid because military are literally seeking people out in their homes. There's a situation of extreme political persecution.
4: Y aunque mucha gente no sale solamente por situaciones políticas, sino también por situaciones económicas y sociales.
3: And some people are leaving not just for the political reasons, but also for economic and social reasons.
4: Podríamos decir que estamos viviendo la crisis más grande después del golpe de estado del 2009. And
3: what we can say is that we're living through the most serious crisis that we've lived through since the coup d'etat of 2009, which is making it so that there's a scandalous number of people that are basically being expelled from the country.
0: Um, Matt, I wanted to ask you about um, what you've seen. You were there recently and you were friends for a long time with uh, Berta Caceres and her organization, the Council of Popular Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, Copina. Uh, you were down there for a Copina um, conference. What, what, what's it like?
3: So I'll say uh, the situation, as Carla said, is extremely dire. It's a situation of extreme repression. There's uh, 21 political prisoners still from the struggle against the electoral fraud. Um, In November, the military police continue to use live ammunition on unarmed protesters, which your listeners who've paid attention to the story will remember has caused a death toll of over 30 people shot down for just protesting what was a blatant electoral fraud, something that everybody condemned internationally, no government in the world Uh, Said yes, those were clean, fine elections, and even the OAS and EU were able to recognize the extremity of the situation. The flip side of that also, though, is that despite those conditions, despite that repression, despite the death toll, despite the political prisoners, people continue to resist. And as you mentioned, I was just at the 25th anniversary of an organization that they thought that they had done away with when they assassinated its leader, the visionary indigenous leader, Berta Cáceres, but has instead of disappearing, actually continued to grow, deepen its vision, deepen its struggle, and that was very much on display just recently when they celebrated their 25th anniversary.
0: I wonder if both of you could answer what exactly the opposition can do in this situation. Um, is there a, a mobilizations that can even happen or take place? Uh, what, what does a political opposition do in a militarized situation?
4: With Yo creo, Jerome, que siempre hemos estado hablando en Honduras desde hace mucho tiempo de una cosa que pasa de manera paralela y más allá del poder formal y es precisamente la lucha contra el modelo, el modelo extractivista y el modelo de muerte.
3: So I think, Jerome, for a long time we've really been talking about in Honduras how there's a parallel structure and in parallel to the formal system of governance, there's a model that's really what's ruling, and that's a model of extractivism, a model of corporate rule, really a model of neocolonialism.
4: Y creo que a pesar de que la dictadura se impone a través de Juan Orlando Hernández y esta esta pretensión de hacernos creer que llegó de manera democrática al poder este a la par de eso hay una lucha de resistencia importante y precisamente el copín eh, ofrane para en representación del pueblo garífuna y el movimiento amplio por la dignidad y la justicia de otros pueblos estamos sosteniendo una lucha contra el modelo extractivista yo creo que eso importante mencionarlo siempre porque sino siempre de la lógica formal del poder.
3: And so, despite the fact that yes, there is a dictatorship, a dictatorship that's been imposed of the uh, dictator Juan Orlando Hernandez, who uh, is a dictator despite his attempts to convince the world that he was democratically elected. Alongside of that imposition, we continue to see, and it's important to mention this, the struggle of organizations like Copin, the indigenous organization, Ofrane, the Black fraternal organization of Honduras, the Broad Movement for Dignity and Justice. That continue their struggle and they continue their struggles in the communities against this model, this model of extractivism. And that continues despite the dictatorship. Uh, Matt, do you want to weigh in on that yourself? Yeah, I would just add that people continue to resist in the spaces and the ways they can. One of the beautiful things about this phase of the resistance has been that people have made a decision to resist from where they are. So every neighborhood, every remote village around the country, you'll see spontaneously people self-organizing, road blockades, burning tires in the street, stopping traffic, uh, doing sit-ins in the local buildings, you see them uh, once again. And in fact, this is something that really uh, is very much consistent with the thought of Berta Casares and, and other leaders like her, who I remember in 2013, your listeners may remember there was another electoral fraud, and many people were saying, what do we do now if we can't even get a chance at being able to vote in our own authorities? What do we do? And Bertha said, no, these are the perfect moments for us to deepen our struggle and to deepen it from the communities. That's when she went to Rio Blanco. That's when she went back to the communities and said the struggle against the dictatorship and against the system, against the coup, starts from where we're living. It starts from opposing the model that is really the reason for the imposition of this dictatorship, which is a model of extraction, a model of death, a model of neocolonialism, as Carla said.
0: I'm talking with activist Matt Ginsberg-Jekyll and Carla Lara. She is a singer from Honduras who we've had on the pro- program several times. Uh, I wonder, you're traveling around on a tour and uh, singing before people. I imagine you're seeing a lot of Hondurans in the U.S. What kinds of things are they saying about uh, the situation in Honduras and the refugee crisis? And um, How are they feeling?
4: Pues yo creo que les duele mucho no poder regresar, no sentir que tienen un, un lugar a donde volver.
3: It hurts them a lot to not be able to go back, to really feel they don't have a place to go back
4: to. And
3: you find a lot of people who thought that in their middle ages, or once they got to 60 or above, they were going to be able to go back and live out those ages in, in peace in their country, and instead they're finding themselves in a situation of a ton of fear.
4: Eso da como tristeza verlo, ¿no? Oír a la gente decir, no, yo ya no voy a volver. Eh, Y también encontrás otra que dice, no, hay que ir, hay que trabajar, en el país hay cosas que hacer. Es como decía Mateo cuando hablaba de lo que Berta decía, y es que eh, es el tiempo, es el tiempo de arreciar la lucha, es el tiempo de no perder la convicción, y es el tiempo de, de defender la naturaleza, la vida, el planeta.
3: And so it is extremely sad to see that, to see those people giving up on that dream of being able to be go back. But then there's another set of people that are saying, you know what, no, despite that, this is exactly the moment when I have to go back. There's work to be done. Just like Matt was saying that Berta said, you know, this is a time for us to deepen and speed up to the struggle, to, str- to struggle harder than ever in defense of nature, in defense of our communities, in defense of life.
0: The last time I saw you, you were encouraged about the women's movement and things that women were doing for for reproductive rights in Honduras. Um, how is that going? There, is that women's struggle um, progressing in some way?
4: Sí. De hecho, hemos retomado un esfuerzo iniciado por, por Berta Cáceres otra vez, ¿verdad? Y, y, inspirado ahora mucho en Miriam Miranda de la Ofrane, y es precisamente una una de mujeres indígenas y negras se llama Conamin que es una, una, un espacio que nos junta a las mujeres de diferentes
3: y yes so as we have actually continued to progress we've taken back up a struggle that was first actually proposed by Berta and that is conti- the legacy of which has been continued by Miriam Miranda of the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras and that's an alliance of indigenous and black women around the country
4: Y más allá de las siglas y de qué organización lo retome, creo que sí es tiempo para, para, y lo ves en todas partes, y en en este tour también lo he sentido, y es que estamos hablando de un tiempo de mucho poder femenino, de una feminización del pensamiento político, y feminizar el pensamiento político significa que sea más armónico, menos guerrerista, menos patriarcal, y eso es sumamente poderoso.
3: And beyond you know, the titles or the names of the coalitions and organizations, this is something that you can see, it's something you can feel, it's something we've been talking about throughout this tour, about the feminine power, about the feminization of our political thought, and what that means is a less militaristic thought, an uh, anti-patriarchal thought, and that's something that, that we live out and that we see in this mo- political moment.
0: Carla Lara is on a singing tour of the United States. Matt Ginsberg-Jekyll is an activist and interpreter. Thanks a lot for joining us again and talking about what's going on in Honduras. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about the Chinese Communist Party and whether it has informants in American universities, including the University of Illinois. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. And we have a question. Um, The term people of color is invoked a lot these days, especially since the proliferation of high-profile cases of police brutality. Um, But does the term capture the nuances of racism between non-white racial groups? How do people of color who are not black treat black people? We're going to discuss this hot topic on Wednesday, and we want to hear from you. The Worldview hotline is 312-948-4880, and you can share your story of racism that's not captured in the term people of color, how are uh, people who are not black treating black people. That's 312-948-4800. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.